Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is volume 13, issue number five, which happens to correspond with the week of January 16, 2023. This is coronavirus update number 79 with some quick hits, also COVID immune solvency, no matter the variant, and then a recipe of the week. The free thoughts this week are these. Teens that look at their social media multiple times a day are at much greater risk for mood dysthymia based on desensitization to social cues and punishments in live real-life events. There are direct brain alterations in the amygdala, which proves a direct brain effect. In the quick hits number six and seven, continuing our neurologic informational understanding this year, we're going to touch on this topic. All right, so update number 79 of coronavirus. This week, we look at the new data on viral cell infiltration, mask efficacy, hyperlipidemia, micro and macronutrient metabolism, post-moderate to severe disease, and then we switch over to some random acts of kindness. And then, like I said, onto the social media neurology and outcomes in teens. Song of the week is Tightrope by Michelle Williams. All right, so the Omicron U.S. strains as of January 14th data show that variants of concern right now are mostly made up of BQ1.1 at 29%, new strain XBB.1.5 at 43%, and then a smattering of XBB at 4%, BN.1 at 2%, and BA.5 at 3%. As always, with XBB.1.5 as a dominant strain, we are still seeing no increased risk of hospitalization or death in countries like Singapore, where the data is being tracked, and now most of the U.S. data appears to be the same. Highly infectious, more than anything we've seen in a long, long time, and no increased risk of death. So that's great. The quick hits. Number one, very interesting study looking at COVID-19 severity and the risk for downstream metabolic dysfunction from the journal Cell. Quote, for a large cohort of patients representing the full spectrum of disease severities, we constructed a cross-omic interaction network that revealed, for example, COVID-19 severity-dependent connections between specific elevated cytokines and the downregulation of certain classes of metabolites and metabolic processes, suggesting an orchestration between increasing disease severity, elevated inflammation, and loss of key circulating nutrients. Further, the plasma multiomic profiles captured a surprising similarity between moderate and severe COVID-19 and a sharp difference between mild and moderate infections. This major shift is marked by the preferential loss of lipids, amino acids, and xenobiotic metabolism, and significant elevations of inflammatory cytokines. The net implication is that of a stressed pro-inflammatory environment accompanied by decreased metabolic resources and signatures of possible hepatic dysfunction. Similarly, a sharp difference between mild and moderate cases is observed in the peripheral immune cells. This is characterized by significant elevation in adaptive activated immune cells and the emergence of unusual phenotypes. An interesting example is that of CD4 positive T cells, which exhibit both a proliferative exhaustive phenotype and a clonal expanded CD4 positive cytotoxic phenotype. In fact, these two CD4 phenotypes exhibit distinct functional signatures, distinct T-cell receptor sharing patterns, and may represent two divergent destinations for naive CD4-positive T-cells. Whether these phenotypes are harmful or protective remains unclear, but the relative abundances increase with infection severity starting at the transition between mild and moderate disease, end quote. That comes from Sue et al. in Cell in 2022. 
Look at the figures in the paper as they are very illustrative of the shift in immune metabolic function. The key for me in this piece is the loss of ability in metabolic capabilities of lipid metabolism, amino acid metabolism, and xenobiotic metabolism, and xenobiotic meaning foreign biotic organisms and, and chemicals. So for example, uh, this could be anything like toxins that are inhaled, toxins that are ingested through food. The body's natural ability to clear these mechanistically is hampered. All of this downstream leads to inflammation, which is the main problem. So for me, what this paper really details is the reality that mild disease from COVID-19 is vastly different from moderate to severe disease and the downstream damage. Moderate or severely infected individuals have major shifts in macronutrient metabolism as well as clearing toxins due to damaged cellular machinery from the hyperinflamed issue induced by SARS-2. If you suffer moderate to severe disease of COVID origin, you must begin a process of healing yourself. I would counsel myself to begin time-restricted feeding or time-restricted eating patterns in a 16 hours off, 8 hours on cycle. I would lean toward a keto-style diet with whole foods, mostly plants, and added non-keto foods. I would exercise to tolerance while avoiding all toxins, especially alcohol and drugs that are metabolized by the liver. I would begin meditation and prayer daily for sympathetic and inflammation downregulation. I could personally say, and many of you know this already, that I had moderate COVID disease in 2020, roughly eight days worth. It took a toll on my system that I still am coming out from under today, but I'm working my tail off. These studies help us understand for the future what happens post-illness. Something to pay attention to over time. Number two, hyperlipidemia noted post-acute COVID illness. Quote from the journal... Lancet Diabetes and Endocrinology by Zhu et al., XU et al., 2022. In the post-acute phase of SARS-CoV-2 infection, compared with a non-infected contemporary control group, those in the COVID-19 group had higher risks and burdens of incident dyslipidemia, including total cholesterol levels greater than 200 milligrams per deciliter, triglycerides greater than 150 milligrams per deciliter, LDL cholesterol greater than 130 milligrams per deciliter, and HDL cholesterol lower than 40 milligrams per deciliter. The risks and burdens of these post-acute outcomes increased in a graded fashion corresponding to the severity of the acute disease of COVID-19 infection. The results were consistent in analysis comparing the COVID-19 group to the non-infected historical control group. Experimental evidence suggests that the immune and inflammatory response following the initial infection could alter hepatic lipoprotein metabolism, which might transiently result in depressed levels during the acute phase with putative overcompensatory rebound in the post-acute phase. Studies also also suggest substantial changes in oral and gut microbiome and proteomic and metabolomic profiles of individuals infected with SARS-CoV-2 that could last well beyond the acute phase and contribute to the changes in lipid profiles, end quote. For me, this is a clear indication that the immunolipid metabolic system is mobilized to fight the acute SARS-2 in illness and takes time to revert to pre-illness levels, assuming that tissues are not permanently damaged and or post-infectious lifestyle changes are maintaining the dysfunction. The graded response to the infectious disease burden is in line with what would be expected. More disease equals more immune cell, lipid cell disease burden and involvement and more damage leading to longer time to recovery. It behooves everyone seeing these changes to recheck levels in a few months to assess the long-term damage as opposed to acute responses. Number three, are N95 masks superior to surgical masks? 
There has been a going belief now for the past two years that this is true. A study says that this may be not true. Quote, in the intention to treat analysis, RT-PCR confirmed COVID-19 occurred in 52 of the 497 participants in the medical mass group versus 47 of the 570 N95 respirator group. Only a difference of five people. An unplanned subgroup analysis by country found that in the medical mass group versus N95 respiratory group, the PCR confirmed COVID-19 occurred in 6% versus 3, uh, excuse me, versus 2% in Canada, 35% versus 24% in Israel, 3% versus 2% in Pakistan, and 13, excuse me, 14% versus 15% in Egypt. This comes to us from Loeb et al. 2022. This is a study that is multi-country with 22-month time frame, which means it covered multiple variants. This is a reassuring data set for those at high-risk pools, including healthcare workers exposed to actively ill persons and those with metabolic and immunologic risk. One mask is not much better than the other. There is some emerging data that masks may not really be that beneficial anyway with a new variant. So just take this for what it is right now in this moment in time. Four, COVID infects the entire body according to new research by nature. Quote, coronavirus disease, COVID-19, is known to cause multi-organ dysfunction during acute infection with severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2, with some patients experiencing prolonged symptoms termed post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2. However, the burden of infection outside the respiratory tract and time to viral clearance are not well characterized, particularly in the brain. Here we carried out complete autopsies on 44 patients who died with COVID-19 with extensive sampling of the central nervous system in 11 of these patients to map and quantify the distribution, replication, and cell type specificity of SARS-CoV-2 across the human body, including the brain, from acute infection to more than seven months following symptom onset. We show that SARS-CoV-2 is widely distributed, predominantly among patients who died with severe COVID-19, and that virus replication is present in multiple respiratory and non-respiratory tissues, including the brain early in infection. Further, we de detected persistent SARS-CoV-2 RNA in multiple anatomic sites, including throughout the brain, as late as 230 days following symptom onset in one case. Despite extensive distribution of SARS-CoV-2 RNA throughout the body, we observed little evidence of inflammation or direct virocytopathology outside of the respiratory tract. Our data indicate that in some patients, SARS-CoV-2 can cause systemic infection and may persist in the body for months. End quote. Stein et al. 2023. This is concrete evidence that can only be seen reliably after death that this virus does in fact cause system-wide disease as the virus travels everywhere in those that are ill. Since long COVID appears to be systemic, I hypothesize that like Epstein-Barr virus mono, this virus does this after mild disease. Fascinating is an understatement when you discuss this virus. Okay, onto some non-COVID stuff. Number five, in the journal Experimental Psychology, we see an article about the long-distance love bombs that I recently wrote about. Quote, performing random acts of kindness increases happiness in both givers and receivers, but we find that givers systematically undervalue their positive impacts on recipients in both field and laboratory settings. Those performing an act of kindness reported how positive they expected recipients would feel and recipients reported how they actually felt. From giving away a cup of hot chocolate in a park of to giving away a gift in the lab. Those performing a random act of kindness consistently underestimated how positive their recipients would feel, thinking their act was a less 
was of less value than recipients perceived it to be. Givers, miscalibrated expectations, are driven partly by an egocentric bias in the evaluations of the act itself, whereas recipients' positive reactions are enhanced by the warmth conveyed in the act of the kind act. Givers' expectations are relatively insensitive to the warmth conveyed in their action. Underestimating the positive impact of a random act of kindness also leads givers to underestimate the behavioral consequences their pro-sociality will produce in recipients through indirect reciprocity. We suggest that givers' miscalibrated expectations matter because they can create a barrier to engaging in pro-social actions more often in every day, which may result in people missing out on opportunities to enhance both their own and others' well-being. Kumar et al., 2022. The key piece here is knowing that your little efforts mean a lot to the recipient. Therefore, give away kindness everywhere you can. It is that simple, folks. Six, our phones drain on our capacity to be. From an article called Brain Drain, Adrian Ward writes, In this research, we tested the brain drain hypothesis that the mere presence of one's own smartphone may occupy limited capacity cognitive resources, thereby leaving fewer resources available for other tasks and undercutting cognitive performance. Results from two experiments indicate that even when people are successful at maintaining sustained attention, as when avoiding the temptation to check their phones, the mere presence of the devices reduces available cognitive capacity. Moreover, these cognitive costs are highest for those highest in smartphone dependence, end quote, Ward et al. 2017. So they noted that over 90% of the smartphone users do not leave home without it, and most check them almost 100 times a day. Only 20 years ago, this persistent connection was impossible. How does the persistent connection impact our cognitive ability? We know that it takes away from doing other things for our youth, like playing an instrument, dating a person dating a person in person, reading books frequently, streaming act, reaction, and reduced physical activity, and so much more. I could tell you that I average 88 pickups a day, way more than I'd like. Today, like a day where I'm on call, it's 108. So this is reality for all of us, not what I'd like it to be. I am consciously not trying to bring my phone into restaurants or places that I don't need them. This is something that we all have to be aware and conscious for setting examples for our kids, helping our kids understand this stuff. Let's look a little deeper here. They also go on to say, quote, when these devices are salient in the environment, their status as high priority, relevant and salient stimuli suggests that we, they, will exert a gravitational pull on the orientation of attention. And we consumers are engaged in tasks for which their smartphones are task irrelevant. The ability of these devices to automatically attract attention may undermine performance in two ways. First, smartphones may redirect the orientation of conscious attention away from the focal task and toward thoughts or behaviors associated with one's phone. Prior research provides ample evidence that individuals spontaneously attend to their phones at inopportune times and that this digital distraction adversely affects both performance and enjoyment. Second, smartphones may redistribute the allocation of attentional resources between engaging with the focal task and inhibiting inhibiting attention to one's phone. 
Because inhibiting automatic attention occupies attentional resources, performance on tasks that rely on these resources may suffer even when consumers do not consciously attend to their phones. We explore this possibility in the current research. Similarly, research in the educational sphere demonstrates that using mobile devices and social media while learning new materials reduces comprehension and impairs academic performance, end quote. The article is deep and excellent, parsing through the data with regard to working memory and fluid memory and how they are affected by the smartphones using up capacity for these actions over time. These issues are way out in the forefront of issues that we are seeing in children. Working memory deficits are a common feedback result of psychoeducational testing in our patients. How much of this is attributable to the use of smartphones and streaming screens is a guess, but is definitely not zero. Keep these devices completely away from your toddlers and young children. Trust me, you do not want to get them started being hooked on this stuff. Absolutely reduce the use for all young kids and really help your teenagers. Number seven, more on this topic from another study. Quote, in this cohort study of 169 6th and 7th grade students, participants who engaged in habitual checking behaviors showed a distinct neurodevelopmental trajectory within brain regions comprising the effective salience, motivational, cognitive control networks in response to anticipating social rewards and punishments compared with those who engage in non-habitual checking behaviors. End quote. Maza et al. 2023. So here... We note that teens that habitually check their social media have brain changes that are concerning for social mood and anxiety over time. The changes were noted in the amygdala, which governs emotions and memory. The changes increased over time with continued high social media usage, noting a stacking effect over time. Disrupting these amygdala functions could have downstream effects that are lifelong and problematical for life success. The authors noted that high users became desensitized to positive social cues and punishments from live actions and others. Ugh. Not good stuff, folks. So JAMA Pediatrics, again, that's from Maza, if you want to look it up. All right, section two is a pathophysiology redo for those that missed it and need a refresher on how to stay safe with Omicron XB 1.5 on the prowl. So for me, a massive piece of the pathophysiology story resides in the precursor risk factor for poor pathogen clearance and worsening inflammatory responses. Epidemiologically, it is clear that 97 or 98% or more of the COVID deaths are related to people who have advanced age with comorbid diseases of poor lifestyle choices as a standard American diet, sedentary behavior, toxin exposure, eating excessive volumes of caloric uh, uh, entities, inadequate sleep, mental stress, and other issues, all driving dysfunctional shifts in immune polarity, autoimmune potential antibody induction, and systemic inflammation. These changes are present in the host prior to the infectious viral exposure setting the stage for poor viral clearance, killing capacity, and later hyperinflammation. I think that this is the key piece of the entire narrative. What can we control in order to surveil, recognize, and then kill the SARS-CoV-2 virus before it has the opportunity to cause a massive inflammatory storm in our body? We can control our lifestyle choices that enhance immune function and prevent exposure. It is that simple. The rest is relatively out of your control. Right? million people have died in this country because a lot of these understandings were not put into the sphere of influence in news, print, social media, from doctors all over the place. So understanding the pathogenesis is sort of critically clear. I'm not going to go through this in this newsletter audio cast, but if you want to read this, it goes deep and you can click the newsletter uh, at salisburypediatrics.com, go to the health and wellness tab and click the newsletter and read it. 
But just suffice it to say, the keys are one, sleep. Healthy sleep is critical for helping keep a well-polarized immune system, especially for the T helper cells. Disordered sleep increases inflammation, increases Th2 response at the expense of Th1 response, decreasing pathogen killing. Not good. Two, stress. Stress Stress chemistry is inherently inflammatory. Many patients will have been enduring significant chronic stress by the time they become infected. That is a major problem. That will mess with your ability to have immune solvency. Deal with your stress before you get sick. Meditate. Make sure you're getting adequate you know, discussions around the things that you're hung up about that are messing with you mentally. Deal with whatever is bothering your brain. Three, glycemic control. Addressing how well your blood sugar response is, how well your insulin response is, how well your sensitivity to food is, is critical in maintaining immune solvency. Four, other dietary factors that can mess with this, right? A high-quality nutrient-dense diet with lots of micronutrients in them also helps the immune system function at its highest level. Five, microbiome balance. Both the lung and the GI tract have important microbiomes that if we are not feeding them correctly, they will come back and be dysfunctional for us and have immune dysregulation that works against us. So make sure they're eating lots and lots of fibrous foods, veggies mostly and fruits, And also for the lung microbiome, avoiding toxins, cigarettes, vaping, anything that can irritate your lungs. Six, exercise daily. You know, it doesn't have to be running marathons. Honestly, your best bet is to walk a lot, work in the yard, do stuff that is physically empowering. Seven, honestly, take some minerals and vitamins to support your system. That's the quick and dirty. Again, go to the newsletter to read more and get deeper look into the story. So um, the final piece is a recipe of the week called liver with bacon and sherry. The link is in the newsletter. Liver is an amazing food, folks, loaded with iron, choline, folate, B12, B2, vitamin A, good amounts of magnesium and phosphorus, all of which are super important in helping the methylome, helping us keep our epigenetic system in play and biologically age slower. Eating small amount of liver is a power punch of health. We all need to find sources of natural, high-quality macro and micronutrients, and liver is a star in this space. If you ever watched an animal eat another animal in the wild, you will rightly see that the organ meats are preferred over the skeletal muscle. I have seen this myself personally live in Wyoming, and it is obvious that we as humans consume what we like and not what is best for us for our survival. Ruminants and herbivores clearly get their nutrients by upcycling large volumes of plants. We are omnivores as a species, leading me to see liver as a piece of a balanced diet based on nature's education. All right, folks, that is this week. Again, the song of the week, Tightrope by Michelle Williams. Excellent song. And hug those kids. Find them, hug them, and just really help your children have a great Hey, have a great day. And with that, I leave you. Goodbye. The information provided in this newsletter audio cast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.